Welcome to the very first episode of Little Known History. This is going to be a fortnightly podcast that you can download on iTunes or via our website. We are hoping to give you aspects of Sydney's history that you might not otherwise know about. In the future, we'll be covering some exciting topics, including uh, riots, uh, we'll even do an assassination. But this week, we're going to be talking about something which every Sydney cider knows about, but perhaps is not aware of the history of, and that is the North Head Quarantine Station. Let's go back to the very beginning. Dr Jones, after the colony was founded in 1788, ships, of course, set out from England. Now, they could take up to a year to reach Sydney. What were the conditions like? Yes, well, they could take up to a year to reach Sydney. The first fleet took uh, seven months, I believe. The travel time is significantly reduced as it course of the next century. Of course, the advent of steam in the 1860s. But even looking at around four months for a large, large portion of that, that's a pretty long time to be at sea. You are, of course, putting into a few ports to take on supplies as you go along. But often these ports are where a lot of the diseases originate. Conditions were often uh, far from pristine. And it wasn't really uncommon for people to die on these voyages. The first fleet, when it came to Australia, that was a government-funded fleet. And so the conditions are reasonably good and there isn't a lot of death on board. After that, it becomes more of a commercial venture. So the bottom line is money. And a lot of people travelling to Australia, they wouldn't have got pristine conditions. And a lot of them were, of course, convict ships as well that were coming. So being the bottom line, money being the main thing, conditions weren't really their top priority of the people who were funding and organising these ships. So to cut a long story short, disease was rife on these early ships. They often had around four to five hundred passengers on a relatively small sailing ship. And if you bid on these sailing ships, they're fairly cramped conditions, even with only a few people on board. So you could, one can only imagine what they went through. And so very early on in the colony's history, you know, the colony was fighting to survive from its earliest days. Of course, having to quarantine ships became a, an absolute priority because the last thing you want to do to a colony that's already fighting for its survival is introduce killer diseases. Mm. Why was North Head chosen as a site for the quarantine station? Well, predominantly two things that were needed. Isolation, of course, from the rest of the colony, but at the same time, it had to have accessibility as well. Within Sydney Harbour, of course, the presence of natural springs was also a determining factor. The access to clean drinking water was one of the main obstacles that was faced by the colony in its earliest years. And so the balance between isolation and accessibility, basically, and mainly accessible from the sea, but also from land as well, especially later on. Mm. The first recorded use of the station was in 1828, I believe, but its first cemetery was established shortly after. I believe this was built in a rather unfortunate place. Yes, well, the first cemetery was established during the quarantining of a ship called the Lady McNaughton in 1837. I think there's been at least one book published on that particular voyage. Despite its close proximity to Quarantine Beach, where it was plainly visible to incoming vessels, 
and what would have been very superstitious passengers during this period, the site retained its function as a cemetery until about 1853, when it was actually discovered that the station's drinking water flowed through this part of the plot. And even when this was confirmed and a new site selected, it was only the headstones that were actually moved, which was a bit of a mystery. Mm. So when you go today and you, you go on a tour you actually go past this and see this cemetery where the drinking water was running through this. And I believe many of the poor unfortunate souls that were buried there are actually still there. Mm. Now, the Quarantine Act of 1832 was a bit of a game changer. Suddenly, the captain of the ship was responsible for the health of his passengers. Now, if a ship was quarantined, how expensive was it for the captain and his employer? Oh, well, it would have been extremely expensive and I, I, re I think that's really the idea behind the legislation of course it saves the colony and the British government uh, a phenomenal amount of money making the actual conveyor of the passengers responsible for footing the bill but more importantly it gives them a very important incentive for making sure that all their passengers are healthy well-rested individuals that aren't carrying any diseases and this comes back to what I was saying before where money really is the bottom line for in commercial travel, where you basically want the most number of people for the most amount of money, basically. Now, although we've been referring to Northhead as a quarantine station, it didn't have much in the way of permanent infrastructure during the 1830s and early 1840s. What were the facilities like? Yes, as you say, to call Northhead a quarantine station during the 1830s and 1840s would be somewhat misleading, given that it lacked permanent infrastructure and facilities. In the case of the Lady McNaughton, which I've just mentioned, healthy passengers and crew would have been forced to lodge in tents, and this is in the heat of summer, whilst the sick who were being tended to would have been given four or five small dwellings that existed at the time. So it's basically just a plot of land with a few small dwellings on it during this period. Even by the 1850s, when transportation of convicts had been ended and free migration to the colony was increasing, especially due to the gold rushes, the station was still only capable of accommodating around about 150 people. And as I said before, these ships were often carrying about 400 people. So it's little wonder, therefore, that the majority of people who died at the quarantine station during its 150 years of operation, died during this period, died during the first half of the 19th century, in spite of the fact that there were far fewer people emigrating to Australia during the first half of the 18th century than there were during the first half of the 19th century. Let's touch briefly on one of the archaeological aspects of Northhead, the various rock carvings and inscriptions that are being left by visitors to the station. Where can we find these? Where are they located? Yes, of course. Well, when we talk about archaeology, we tend to talk about, you know, thousands of years digging up old bones and, and things like that. But there's actually a lot of archaeology to be done on fairly recent history. And part of that has to do with the carvings that we can find on the rocks around the quarantine station. There's some excellent work being done at the University of Sydney, for example, on these. And there are, I think, two spatially distinct assemblages of inscriptions. One of them's around the main quarantine facility, which includes the wharf area at Spring Cove. This is the wharf where which ships would have arrived at when they came to the quarantine station. And the others are around about 500 metres to the south of this, around the cliffs and rock ledges 
of an area known as Old Man's Hat. Now, this is a fairly inaccessible area, and it's no surprise that much of the academic work that has been done on these carvings has been done on the former ones around uh, Spring Cove. Do we know who made these inscriptions? Because they're not all in English, are they? Well, one source I know of has determined that there are only about 20% of these carvings that are identifiable by date. So the people who've made the inscriptions were good enough to actually carve the date that they made them into the rock, which is, of course, very useful to us. But not all the inscriptions are in English. Many of them date, when we can date them, from the main period of maritime quarantine, from after the main period of maritime quarantine, i.e. after 1960, the majority of formal inscriptions, so not just kind of colloquial silliness that you might find from someone who was just bored, so formal inscriptions, people actually writing information that would be useful to others who read it, is around Spring Cove, so around the disembarkation point. And I suppose it is important to say at this stage that a significant part of the quarantine process was unloading the passengers, working out who was infected, and they were immediately dispatched to the hospital, of course. But then, of course, you do a roll call, you make sure you've got everyone there. Then, of course, you send them off to take showers and have all their clothes industrially cleaned. But there is a lot of waiting around, around the wharf area, and it was during this time that a lot of the formal inscribing took place. And so ships coming in have seen inscriptions of other people that had come through there in years previously. One source cites an inscription made by a passenger of a ship called the Samuel Plinsoll, which I believe was an iron-hulled sailing ship, typical of the period, which set sail from Plymouth in March 1878 uh, with about 460 passengers. The inscription indicates that the vessel arrived in June 1879 Twelve passengers are recorded as having died on this voyage, although there are also three born. You don't often think about that, but there were actually three passengers born on the ship, which only goes to show how long these voyages could be and how crammed and inhumane, perhaps, the conditions could be. But state records indicate that whilst twelve passengers died, three were born at sea. One of those who did not survive was the son of a stonemason from Scotland, and this was the stonemason who did the engravings of those who made it, he perhaps celebrating the safe passage of those who survived the journey. The inscription, together with another smaller one that's slightly lower down, lists the names of those who landed, providing a useful source with which to complement the official register. Interestingly, though, the inscription actually excludes the name of the Samuel Plimsoll's surgeon, Pringle Hughes, whom the stonemason might well have fallen out with over the unfortunate demise of his son. That's speculation, of course, but it is an an odd omission, I think. Mm. Now, the facilities were somewhat neglected during the 1860s and 70s due to a decline in immigration, but the smallpox epidemic in 1881 actually led to the site being improved. How did that happen? Well, yes, there was a decline during the 1860s and 70s. This is a period of recession in the world, so it wasn't just simply a question of less immigration, less people having the money and the the means of travelling, but it was also the fact that the colony felt that money would have been better spent elsewhere. And I guess they had to think again in 1881 when smallpox, one of the major diseases of the period, appeared once again. And there was a royal commission 
and the establishment of a Board of Health, the New South Wales Board of Health, during this time. Breakthroughs in medical science, particularly in the fields of immunology and germ theory, would also bring about substantial improvements, and the power and influence of wealthy emigrants whose status demanded the same degree of comfort in quarantine as they received on board their ships. I mean, in the early days, you have shipfuls of convicts who, you know, the authorities, they weren't terribly fussed about their well-being. But of course, once free immigration takes place, you have a lot of wealthy individuals, upper-class individuals, who are accustomed to a certain way of life. And if they have to go through a quarantine facility, then they are accustomed to a certain standard of living. And so that was certainly a factor as well, which pushed the New South Wales colonial government to improve the facilities somewhat after 1881. All right, now, um, the North Head Quarantine Station was under federal control, I believe, and after this um, massive upgrade in the quality of the facilities, uh, partially as a result of the Board of Health, as you mentioned before... There was a bubonic plague epidemic which hit Sydney in 1900. But after that, the quarantine station's facilities wasn't really a need for them. The need was beginning to wane. Is this true? Well, yes. Uh, in 1881, it was still the quarantine station was still the property of the New South Wales government. After Federation takes place, it becomes the property of the Australian government and they were keen to improve the site even further than the New South Wales government had. Uh, if you look at the site today, there are 65 heritage-listed buildings, many of which have been restored, but most of them only date back to the 1910s, so the period when the Commonwealth government took control of the site. The Federal Quarantine Act was enacted in 1908. Right, Dr Jones, at this time, the North Head Quarantine Station was under federal control, which brought about that massive upgrade in the facilities that you were talking about due to the number of recommendations made by the Board of Health. At this time, the quarantine station's facilities were top-notch, but they weren't actually using it as much as they used to. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, federal control of North Head Quarantine Station, which takes place after 1900, um, brings about a massive upgrade in the quality of the facilities was partly due to the recommendations of the Board of Health, as you say, in the wake of a bubonic plague epidemic, which hit Sydney in 1900. But it also reflected the shift that was taking place in Australian society between pre-federated colonial administration, mainly concerned with competition with other colonies, and that of the new federal government, which was far more concerned with the prospect of international competition in the Pacific region. And it is an irony that whilst the, the facilities of the station were expanded considerably during the early 1910s. Um, I think of the 65 heritage-listed buildings there are today. Most of them are dated back to this particular period. The need for these facilities just wasn't there after 1910. Uh, the only time that the maximum capacity, which by this point was 1,200, you'll remember I said in its early days there was only enough room to accommodate about 150 people at the station. It was uh, only during the Spanish influenza epidemic following the First World War that that was actually needed, and in that case it was actually exceeded, so there were a lot more than 1,200 people in and around the quarantine station at this time. The Spanish influenza tears through the ranks of the Australian army at the end of the First World War, as indeed it does most of the other armies. Uh, many of the servicemen who were lucky enough to have survived the war were therefore unlucky enough 
to have contracted a deadly disease or at the very least to have been in close enough proximity to those that had that their triumphant return to Australia was dampened by a period in quarantine. Yes, which couldn't have been uh, much fun. Now, after 1919, the station was put to a couple of other uses. Uh, Tell me about those. Yes, well, uh, as I say, the massive upgrade in the facilities not really needed that much after 1919. And so the Australian government thinks to itself, well, we have a piece of prime real estate here. It's enclosed, it's isolated. We may as well put it to some sort of government-related use. And during the Second World War, parts of the site were given over to the military as uses of barracks, as an army hospital, even a POW transit camp. The Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, I think, made use of the station's hatcheries to breed bandicoots in preparation for testing of an anti-tick serum. So uh, when people think of the quarantine station, I'm sure they don't think of bandicoots, but that's what was going on during that particular period. During the Vietnam War, the station's used to house refugees, as well as other illegal immigrants that happened to arrive on Australian soil at the same time. And during Cyclone Tracy, which hit Darwin in 1974, the site was turned into a makeshift aid centre as well. So the Australian government made sure it tried to get its money's worth as best it could, I think, of those particular facilities. Mm. Now, this time, the quarantine station is wrapping up. I have some figures here. During 157 years of operation, the North End Quarantine Station played host to some 580 ships, more than 13,000 passengers and crew, but why did the government stop using it? As we've been talking about, there really wasn't a need for it anymore. After 1919, I think there were only two recorded deaths after this date. I think you said that there were some 500 people who were recorded as having died at the station. There were only two after 1919. And so the reasons for the sudden drop-off are numerous. Firstly, there were the dual impacts of public health measures and improvements in medical science, especially after the Commonwealth Government takes control of the station. Between 1921 and 1950, only 52 ships are stopped. Secondly, there were vast improvements made in the quality and duration of travel to Australia. I think, as I said before, travel time was significantly reduced and also the quality of travel. People could travel in considerably more comfort. Conditions aboard the ships were improved. This was the heyday of luxury liners. And of course, we have the introduction of commercial aviation. And this is perhaps the key, I think, during the first half of the 20th century, migration to Australia was in decline. Uh, By the time it picked up during the 1950s, this was spurred on by the advent of air travel. People were traveling by plane, not by boat anymore. And this had an important impact on the duties of the quarantine station. I think there were only four ships detained between 1946 and 1975, with the last being in 1973. And from the 1960s, the station takes on additional responsibilities of detaining airline passengers who lack adequate vaccination documentation. But this really didn't justify having an entire quarantine facility capable of accommodating 1,200 people. After 1984, the station became part of the Sydney Harbour National Park. I believe that, as well as historical tours, they also hold ghost tours through the facilities? Yes, well, that's the thing that people tend to talk about when you talk about the quarantine station. They think, oh, don't they hold ghost tours there? And yes, they do. Whether or not it's a legitimate claim that there there is this kind of um, spiritual 
kind of shroud that hangs over the place um, is, is up to the individual. I mean, it's only my place to talk about the history, but considering the amount of death that took place there or even the amount of illness, um, I'd be surprised if there weren't a few few phantoms in the in the closet. And I have been around the, the site a few times, and it, it is quite an eerie place, especially in the older parts of the facility. Um, and, uh, yes, you can go on tours. So... Quarantine station gets used for other things nowadays, I believe. They had to seek funds from the private sector in order to do the restoration. Yeah, it's kind of catch-22. I mean, there there has been a considerable amount of work done on the place to restore it. Of course, it is a bit of a patchwork of a place. Some of it dates back to the 1910s. Some of it dates back to the 19th century. I travelled to the building where the controller of the site lived, and that was full of 1970s bric-a-brac. And so, obviously, that had been in use right up until the closure of the site in 1984. So it is a bit of a patchwork, but each individual building is being restored to its original glory, or as original as it would have been whenever it would have been built. Uh, and this is only really made possible by funds from the private sector. And I believe this involved turning the first-class accommodation, the accommodation where the more privileged people on these voyages would have stayed, turning that into a hotel. So you can actually stay where these people were staying, although I would imagine in considerably more luxury. Indeed. Now, they also, I believe they also offer um, conference facilities, accommodation, fine dining... It's ironic that a place that was associated with so much sickness, disease and death is now a highly sought-after venue for uh, weddings and other functions. It's a funny sort of thing, really. It's actually a very beautiful area when you go and see it. It's a pristine piece of land. It overlooks the harbour, yet it is tainted with this, this horror. I suppose it's a little bit like when you think about the Vietnam War, when you think about how beautiful... Vietnam is as a place, and yet there was all this horror and destruction which took place there. It's a little bit like that with the quarantine station. There was a lot of death, there was a lot of horror, but when you step to one side, it's a very beautiful spot. When you think of the first-class accommodation blocks, these were the people who weren't sick, so no sick people would have ever stayed there. It would have just been the passengers who were detained, much to their dismay, whilst the sick people were attended to on these voyages fascinating part of Sydney. This is Little Known History. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr. Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.